Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a hill, oh, <laughs> but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Great job, that was awesome. Everything that will be said past that point is basically just details. That is what we can trust. And uh, my name is Drew Henderson, and I uh, work with junior high and middle school students here at Sunnybrook. I work with our family ministry team. And the reason why we love those words so much is because who said them? And while we worship the person that said them originally, Jesus Christ, I do appreciate the courage, the work, the dedication of a ninth grade young woman to get up here and memorize the word of God and speak it before us. And what she was able to share with us those, those few minutes are what is known as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the first part of a section of scripture that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks here in our series in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. If you'd like to turn your Bible there, get on your phone, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of that section of Scripture is where we're going to be. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount would be considered to be the first section, the, the first discourse that Matthew records of five different discourses that Jesus actually gave in his ministry as he started his teaching ministry. And I would imagine that there might be those of you here today, you might have some background in church, you might have some background in reading your Bible and trying to understand the words of Jesus. But if you were to be honest, if you've read this section, you would think what Jesus is teaching here is a little bit strange, to say the least, on first reading. A little bit radical, a little bit puzzling, a little, a little strange. And I can remember uh, at 17 years old getting my first Bible. 
Thought, where do I start? Well, I have to read about Jesus, have to read about his ministry, read about all that he did. So I start in the book of Matthew, start in Matthew chapter 1. Read about the birth of Jesus. This seems to make sense. I'm really understanding all of these things. And then I make my way to Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I read these words. I read the words of Jesus when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, then you need to what? You need to gouge it out, and you need to throw it away. It seems a bit extreme. If your right hand causes you to sin, you need to cut it off, and you need to throw it away. And you hear those statements like, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I'm thinking, I can't live this way. There's no way that I could be perfect like God is perfect. And I read those very, very challenging words, words like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But I would also guess that there might be some of you in this room today that may not have that background. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical towards the words or the teachings of Jesus, yet you realize deep down what Jesus is saying here has some very deep truth and some real value in it. You hear these words like, let your yes be yes and your what? Your no be no. Turn the other cheek. Don't be anxious. Love your enemies. You've heard that prayer. You've probably even recited that prayer. Father, hallowed be thy name. And though you might have your doubts, you know deep down inside of you what Jesus is saying here, what he is attempting to teach, really does have some truth value. Uh, This morning, as we get into the Sermon on the Mountain, specifically before we talk about the Beatitudes, I really think that there are some things that we need to understand. We're going to be working through this the next several Sunday mornings. You might be reading these different chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on your own and trying to understand what Jesus is actually teaching through, how we might read it, how we might interpret it, how we might actually apply it to our daily lives. And so on the slides here, we're going to be talking about just some things, guidelines that we need to understand as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, things that will help you and me. The first one actually won't be on the screen, but it's simply this. While what Jesus is teaching here doesn't always need to be taken literally, on the other hand, I don't think what Jesus is teaching is that, that it's totally unobtainable. And I really believe that some of these teachings sound very, very radical, but I believe that there's the sense that as we are empowered by the grace of God, as we are living in the kingdom of God, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, we really are to obey these teachings by the grace of God. They do have meaning for us. A few other things that will be on the screen, you might write these down in your notes, they'll help you understand Uh, more and more on how we might read the Sermon on the Mount and understand it. The first one is that Jesus is aiming at the heart of those people that follow him. The second is that there's always some shock value in what Jesus is saying. He he uses a a lot of hyperbole. He's exaggerating the truth so that we would get the, the basic meaning, the basic teaching of what he is trying to get across. And there's always some tension, though. There's a tension between the way that things are and the way that things ought to be in the kingdom. 
Yet the heart of the matter, what I believe that Jesus is trying to teach here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is this whole idea of the kingdom of heaven. Better yet, how might we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven? And that's a big, big question. It's a question that many of you like to answer. You like your sermons very practical, and I don't want to just learn about the Bible. I don't want to just learn about stories in the Bible and learn a bunch of... I want to have practical take-home points. How many, how many of this is you, right? Every new year, you make all of these goals. Whenever you walk out of church, you want four take-home points, right? I want to do all of these different things. I want to put these into practice, into my life. That is you, and that is not a bad thing. And if that is you, this sermon is for you. Only it's not about you and your kingdom. It's about what is known as the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is the kingdom of heaven? Up to this point, uh, Matthew has mentioned this three different times. John the Baptist, uh, Jim mentioned this several weeks ago, but John the Baptist is the first one that alludes to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus up to this point has alluded to it two times, yet he hasn't fully explained exactly what it looks like to live life in the kingdom of heaven. And I can imagine the disciples thinking to themselves, I've, I've heard the kingdom of heaven. We've heard this three different, what, what is the kingdom of heaven? Maybe you've had this experience before. You've been at work, you've been at a conference, you've been in a classroom, and someone is getting up in front and they're explaining this idea. They're trying to, to get you to understand their vision and what's going on. And throughout the crowd, everyone is nodding their heads. Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Yet you think you're the only one that's like, I, seems like I don't get it. Everyone's nodding, and you start nodding. Your, I could imagine the disciples and the crowds, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom, what is the kingdom of heaven? And it's here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that Jesus begins to explain what the kingdom of heaven is really like for the first time. And I think if I had to summarize this sermon, probably even several of the messages that would, would follow it, it would be in this one statement. It'll be on the screen. It's there in your bulletins. You might write this down. It's simply this. Living in the kingdom of heaven means not living like the world lives. Living in the kingdom of heaven means not living like the world lives. Some people say that uh, Matthew 6, in chapter 6, verse 8, the, the whole entire sermon can be summarized in this one statement that Jesus makes where he says, do not be like them. We are to be set apart to be different than the kingdom of the world. And so Jesus begins this sermon with what are known as the Beatitudes, what Ali recited for us. That word Beatitudes, literally, it means the blessings. It means blessed are those, happy are those who live their lives this way. And they're almost structured like the Proverbs of the Old Testament. When we read the Proverbs and when we read these blessings that Jesus is giving, we can't take them like these are the all-time promises for the way that life will always go. What Jesus is, is seeking to do here and to communicate to his followers is, when you live life in the kingdom, this is how your life will look. And most importantly, we can't view these simply as commands that we need to, to just obey. 
We have to depend on the Holy Spirit. We have to depend on the fact that as members of the kingdom of heaven, simply Jesus is saying, when you live in this kingdom, your lives will look this way. And so Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5 with this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, poor in spirit, goes way back into the history of Israel. You see, for many, many years, they've been taken over by foreign nations, oppressed by them. And it wasn't just their their poverty that existed. It was this idea that it was through all of this oppression that they reached out to God and that they trusted God for all of their provision and that God would be with them in all of their suffering. They trusted God, not themselves. A few weeks ago, I had an incredible opportunity to go and uh, visit with a group called Mission Caribe in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And uh, it was a, an early morning. We left Oklahoma City. I woke up at 3 in the morning, got on this flight, went through Atlanta, barely made the connecting flight, and flew from Atlanta to Tegucigalpa. We were there by early afternoon, and I was, it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was, I was dead tired at that point. We get in a car, we go to the mission where we were staying this particular day, and they feed us lunch. And at this point, I'm just going to be honest, I'm not feeling, I know I'm supposed to be excited. Yes, I'm on the foreign mission field. This is going to be great. And I, I end up at this place, and I'm just tired. And they said, hey, this is what we're going to do. You guys are going to take a nap this afternoon. So we laid down for about an hour, and they said, we're going to go to a New Year's Eve service at at one of our local churches. And I've been to churches in Mexico and I know about churches in Central America and typically the services are not short. (laughs) They're longer. And this was a special service for visitors. And we were here and everyone was excited for this. We were excited for it. And we get in this car, we, we drive to the church down these not grout, large rock roads. We end up at the church And I'm sitting down in this chair, and I'm supposed to tell you that I'm excited to be there. I'm supposed to tell you that this is so great. But I've just got this splitting headache. I don't feel like being there. And I remember sitting in this chair with my head down in my hands, thinking, why? I don't want to be here. I would rather be at home on my couch watching New Year's Rockin' Eve with Ryan Seacrest and enjoying the moment and just relaxing. And uh, I'm going to be honest as, as I was sitting there, I took out my phone and I texted my wife, Kim, and uh, I just said, this is kind of embarrassing. I said, pray for me, I have a headache. <laughs> pray for me, I have, a, I have a headache. And most of you, if you know my wife, Kim, you think that she is just the embodiment of meekness that Jesus is going to be talking about here. This is her, and that is her with everyone else except for me whenever I'm dealing with being a bad patient and my apparent maladies and all of the problems that I'm having. And I'm at, she received this text like, well, what did you think was going to happen? You're tired? You know, this, this is how it is. Woke up the next day. Went to go visit one of the local churches, and we were praying with them and talking about what God was doing through their ministry there. And we said, you know, how can we help you? You know, what's been going, how can we support you? They were going to be coming to our training the next day. And 
and said, you know what? Things seem to be going pretty well here. God is really blessing our ministry, and we're trying to reach our countryside. This place was south of Tegucigalpa. It wasn't too far from El Salvador. And as we've been doing this, though, one of the big frustrations that we had is the storm came in, and it took the roof off of our church. And there it was, the foundation, the brick sides, and no roof. And I will never forget what they said to us that day. They said, even though this has happened, we trust that God will provide. We don't have the money, we don't have the finances, but we trust that God will provide. And Jesus says that it's this kind of person that gets my kingdom. Those who are bankrupt materially, spiritually, these are the people that get my kingdom because they don't depend on themselves, they depend on me for their provision. Jesus continues, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And at first glance, we might think that what Jesus is saying, you're blessed are those who mourn, you've experienced death or some sort of physical pain or loss. But if you look back in the context, it really is alluding to those people who've been broken by their sin, that it's led to their mourning, their spiritual shortcoming before God. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7, this godly sorrow that often leads us to repentance. So I'm going to ask you a question. When was the last time that, that you really viewed your sin in such a way that it has caused you to weep before God? When was the last time? When was the last time that you could say something like Paul says in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from, from, this, uh, from this body of death? Now, how does the world deal with sin? The world would say, hey, man, let's, let's leave sin in the past. Let's not worry about it. God understands with your sin. Hey, no one's perfect. These are the things that the world says. This is the way that we need to deal with sin. But like we said earlier, living in the kingdom means not living like the world. I think Kevin DeYoung in his book, Hole in Our Holiness, he has a quote that really summarizes this whole idea so well. I might write this down. He says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. See, in the kingdom of heaven, sin is not the norm. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we have to be careful here because whenever we hear, hear that word meekness, we often equate it with weakness or someone that's very, very kind, someone that's nice, your best friend, the most humble human being that you could possibly think of, somewhat like a Bambi in human form. This is a meek person. But behind this is something much deeper. The statement builds on the two previous statements. It's those people who are meek that realize their brokenness that they have by sin, which leads to their mourning before God. These are the meek, not the weak. With that word comes the whole idea of strength under control. We see this in who Jesus is. When he says, take my yoke upon you for I am gentle, that word there literally is the same word. I am meek and I'm lowly in heart. Now, this is also the man that cleared the temple in his anger. This is also the man that confronted the religious leaders 
of his day. Meekness is a, a public expression of the humility that we have before God as we stand for the truth in the world. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you always have to have the last word? Especially with the world. Especially with your coworker that may not be a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you always have to have the last word? And that does not mean that we just shrink back, that we don't speak the truth, that we don't even evaluate people's lives, including our own, starting with ourselves first. It does not mean that we shrink back, but we always speak this truth with grace and patience and love. And most of all, as members of the kingdom, we trust God. We trust God with the lives of people. We trust God with the world. We trust God and that he has the last word and we don't have the last word. That would be meekness. Jesus continues. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this isn't the kind of righteousness that Paul often speaks of, like in passages like Romans 3.21, where he talks about how we receive this righteousness from God through Jesus Christ. This is a different kind of righteousness that Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about this, this character and conduct that's available by the grace of God as we live in the kingdom of heaven. This kind of character that pleases God. And so as followers of Jesus Christ who say that we live in the kingdom of heaven, we must ask this question. What is it that we think will really satisfy us? What are you thirsting for? What are you hungering for in your life? You hungering for recognition? Recognition at your job? If you're a college student, you might, I just need a job. I would like to have that. That's what I'm hungering for. Are you hungering for some sort of social media recognition? It makes you f feel really good when you get a lot of likes. Are you hungering for your kids to be viewed as successful? Because if they're viewed as successful, guess who had a part in that? Are you hungering for that? Are you hungering for simply entertainment? Are you living your life weekend to weekend, game to game, concert to concert, the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, and you think that is really going to satisfy you? Jesus would say no. You longing for acceptance, just want to be loved? Are you longing for a full retirement account? And we have to really understand that as members of the kingdom, we are a part of a kingdom that empowers us to live in such a way that we can hunger and thirst for this righteousness of character and conduct, and that is what should satisfy us, nothing else. You know what's interesting is the more and more that we experience this righteousness, the more and more that we realize that this righteousness is only what is going to satisfy us, the more and more we want of it. 
I mean, we experienced this, right? We just came through the holidays. We had Thanksgiving and Christmas. And Thanksgiving, that's the day you eat a light breakfast. And after the light breakfast, you go to grandma's house and you eat an entire turkey for lunch. And things are, man, this is great. You sit down, you get in the recliner, you watch the Lions, and they'll usually lose. And Casey will watch the Cowboys, and they'll usually lose as well. And this is what you do. Take a nap, you wake up, it's about five o'clock. The very next question is, what's for dinner? What are we gonna, we're gonna bring out the turkey again, it's cold now, and we're gonna get sandwiches going, and we're gonna eat this for the next week. Once we're filled, we always, always, always want more. And this is the idea of the kingdom. Only the kingdom of God will fulfill us. Not weekends, not entertainment, not, the, not your success, not your job, not the success of your children. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we see this all throughout Jesus' teaching. We see it in the Lord's Prayer later on in chapter 6. We see it all throughout Paul's teaching, Romans chapter 5, verse 27. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Members of the kingdom show mercy. And this doesn't mean that we don't tell the truth. This doesn't mean that we say, hey, I don't judge. I'm not a hater. I'm not all about all that kind of thing, right? We are able to evaluate based on the truth of the word of God. But in general, is there any room for mercy in your life in dealing with the lives of other people? Or have you just raised everyone to this very, very high standard, a standard that, by the way, you don't want to hold yourself to, but have you raised the standard so high that when anyone falls short of the standard, there's a problem? So husbands, have you raised the standard so high for your wife that when she does not meet the standard, oh man, we have problems? Wives, have you raised the standard so high, the standard of perfection, and when they cannot meet that standard, there is absolutely no mercy. Standard for perfection with your children, is there any room for error, I would say, for anyone in your life? I would venture to say that maybe the reason why it's so hard for some of us to get along with relationships in general, to get along with our families, to get along with our kids, to get along with our husbands and our wives, to get along with people that we work with, to get along with these people is because we have raised the standard to such a height, a height that we would never even be able to reach ourselves. And when people can't meet that, there's no mercy. There's no grace. And if that is you, then I would pay attention. This verse this week blew my mind. James 2.13. He says, judgment will be merciless to the one who's not shown mercy. So if you're that person that is just unreasonable, that's one part of the kingdom that, that you just don't understand. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
If you look all throughout the Bible, you see this. You see in the Old Testament, the importance of the heart is not underestimated. Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Behind this idea of the heart, there are basically two different ideas. The first is cleanliness. Jesus criticized the religious leaders for being so interested in the outward ritualism and their religion and outward cleanliness that they had overlooked their own hearts. And also coming with the idea of uh, that our hearts do not need to be divided. We need to have a single-hearted devotion to God, hearts that are not mixed. Uh, several years ago, while I was attending college, I had an opportunity to be in a preaching class, and while we were uh, taught in, in this class basically how to preach, you, you would write these sermons, everyone would get up, and you would, you would speak your sermon before everyone else in the class, and they would take notes to evaluate how you're doing. The professor was in the class. He would take notes as to how you were doing with the sermon. And I re remember one particular student that got up in front of the class and doing a pretty good job. I'm like, taking notes. This seems to be okay. And Right in the middle of his sermon, this awkward moment, he, he cusses during the sermon. Okay, that was a little bit of a surprise. And so we're all kind of trying to ignore the moment, taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. Okay, we get to the end of the sermon and everyone's asking questions, talking about the sermon and how we thought that it went. And finally, someone just raised their hand and they said, hey, just thought it was a little awkward that you cussed during, during your sermon. And granted, this is only like halfway through the class. It's not like the professor, top 10 things you don't need to do, don't cuss in your sermon. Thought that was kind of a given. <laughs> Cusses in the sermon. And this, this guy, he, he was pretty nervous. And he said, you know, I was just kind of nervous. I didn't know what to say. And, and I just, it just sort of came out. And uh, the guy, this made it even more awkward. The guy that was teaching the class was the father of the kid that was preaching the sermon. <laughs> and he says back... No lie, I'll remember this the rest of my life. He said, son, if it wasn't in your heart, then it wouldn't have come out your mouth. See, our hearts drive us. What's in our heart will come out of our mouths. Let me ask you these questions. What competing interests do you have for your heart? What do you think about? What do you dream of? What do you spend your money on? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, ultimately, this is our God. He is a God that brings peace. He brings peace between men and women, between parents and children, husbands and wives. He brings peace to relationships, and ultimately, God brings peace between himself and all of mankind through Jesus Christ. And this kind of peace that Jesus is speaking of isn't simply just we need to be nice to people, we need to speak quietly, we need to get along even though we all know that there are problems. It's not that kind of, kind of peaceful attitude. Paul goes on to talk about this peace that God, between, God brings between himself and mankind in Colossians 1.20. It says that through Christ, God reconciles to himself all things making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, we live in a non-peaceful world. And I'm not just talking about wars. I'm talking about hostility, brokenness, fear, anxiety seems to be at an all-time high. Just walk through TSA at any airport, fear, fear, fear. 
And what is it that brings peace? It's the kingdom. And Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I've asked myself this question. As I started to read through this and study through this, I thought, how is it that a kingdom that is said to bring peace all of a sudden as this kingdom comes and as this peace comes, there is division? Now, here's the thing. I don't know the answer to that question. Only that I know that that is what Jesus said would happen as the kingdom of heaven was preached. This is what he says in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. In other words, this is not new. They hated me, they will hate my followers. Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. I mean, this makes sense. If you're like them, they will love you. As it is, Jesus says, do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. I mean, that makes sense. When we as members of the kingdom of heaven separate ourselves and we say to the world, we are not like you. We are intentionally not living that way. I'm distancing myself from you. I'm not taking part of those activities. I'm not going to sin in that way. It makes sense that people wouldn't like us. And we hear things like, what are you, some sort of super Christian? Think you're righteous? Do you think that you're some sort of like this Bible beater Christian? Are you, man, you're so judgmental, all you Christian people. You think you're so perfect. And what Jesus says here is, is so amazing. He says, when you experience that, you will be blessed as a member of my kingdom. See, as we're a part of the kingdom and we experience this persecution, this separation, this division, we learn that we trust in our eternal reward and not simply the way that people view us. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. It develops character and faith. 1 Peter 1.16. Test the genuineness of our faith. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. As a matter of fact, in Luke's parallel of this teaching that, that, he, that he summarizes and he gives to his readers, he says this, Woe to you when all speak well of you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. And so as we as the church, by the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, when we live this way, it leads to us, what Jesus says later on in this chapter, it leads to us being salt and light. The world would say, show no mercy. You have the right to be angry. And God says, in the kingdom, you have no rights, as a matter of fact. The world would say, I have to get, his, get what is mine and people of the kingdom say, well, it's all God's. It's not mine. And the world would say, don't worry about your sin. As a matter of fact, that's a bad word. We don't like to say those words. It makes everyone feel uncomfortable. Yet members of the kingdom say, look, our sin is real and it's an, an offense to who God is. It separates us from God. The world would say, give your heart to anything. And God says, no, I need no less than 100%. You see, as the church, even as Sunnybrook Christian Church, we have to understand 
that we live a different way. I would say we live the kingdom way, which is a better way. We live the way of the kingdom, empowered by the Holy Spirit, seeking to follow our King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you that we are counted as members of your kingdom. God, as we read through these words, I know as I read through them the very first time, I was confused. I didn't know what they meant. I didn't know what Jesus was trying to get across. And as we, as a church over the next few weeks, as we seek to understand what you are saying to us, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make that clear. And if not anything else, if we don't remember anything else, let us just cling to this fact that as we are a part of the kingdom of heaven, that we don't live like the world. God, I pray when, when people speak of Sunnybrook, that they would speak of a different people, a people that to the world look strange, our values, what we believe, how we live. And may those words that Luke writes, woe to those who are always spoken well of. Lord, I do pray that people would speak well of us, but I also pray that there would be tension between what we believe as it is so different from what the world believes. And God, thank you for counting us worthy of being in your kingdom and to being a part of this task. In your name, amen.